Good morning and welcome back to Rooted Women's Bible Study and part two of our study in Deuteronomy. Are you excited? Yes. Good, good. It's so good to see so many of you back again. And if you are joining us for the first time, we are excited to have you with us, of course. My name is Christy Weil. I have, if in case you don't know me, I've been involved uh, with Rooted for about six years now, though Rooted did celebrate a 10th birthday back in September. We're real excited about that. And it is a great privilege to be involved in Rooted. I absolutely love it. And don't worry, Cherie will be teaching next week. So you'll have her back then. So before we get started, um, let me open in prayer. Father, we are excited to be in your house. We are excited to study your word. And I pray that as we gather here this morning that you would calm our hearts, slow the distractions, and open us up to your word. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and and clear words, and I pray that everything that comes out of my mouth will be of you and will be honoring to you. And teach us, Lord, teach us about yourself and about your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. In 1850, a long time ago, an English poet from the Victorian era published a collection of poems that she had written while courting her husband. She dedicated the work to him and called it Sonnets from the Portuguese. They are one of the most widely known collections of love lyrics in English. Are you familiar with them? Perhaps Sonnet 43 is a little more familiar. It starts like this. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the breadth and depth and height my soul can reach. Oh, she goes on. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need. I love thee freely. I love thee purely. It goes on and on. Elizabeth Barrett Browning proclaims her love for Robert in words of eloquence that critics have thought to be her best work. So in the 1800s, poetry was very common. Writers often um, communicated their passions through their poetry. But long before Elizabeth Barrett Browning penned her words of love to Robert, poetry was already employed in many ancient writings, even before that. And though Elizabeth was inspired by her love for Robert to write such a lovely poem, that it pales in comparison to words written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we have a whole book of poetry in our Bibles, and we're going to look at one such love poem today, Psalm 119. So I don't think we'd be far off to say that Psalm 119 could have started out, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways as the psalmist declares all the ways that he loves God's word. So um, it doesn't just reveal to us how the psalmist feels about um, the law, but we get into the very heart of Jesus. If you want to know how Jesus viewed the law, read Psalm 119. In fact, it's really a good practice when you're reading through the Psalms to have a mindset that these are words that Jesus read, that Jesus loved, that Jesus knew, words that he himself inspired to be written. 
And we've included this psalm in our study of Deuteronomy. If you'll open your study guides to page one, unless you want to open your Bibles, that's fine too. You're going to see a stanza taken from Psalm 119, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. This psalm, Psalm 119, is one of several acrostic poems in uh, in the Bible. It has 176 verses, and they are divided into 22 stanzas, and each stanza has eight verses. Each stanza is, represents one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which has 22 letters in it. So um, the interesting thing, or the really true work of art in this psalm is that each, so let's say um, the first eight verses represents the Hebrew word or letter Aleph. So every verse in that stanza begins, in the Hebrew text, begins with the letter Aleph. So it doesn't translate that way for us in English, so it's hard to see it, but what a true work of art, right? But let's look at this psalm together. We're going to be looking at Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96, which is printed on page 1 in your study guide. So follow along with me as I read. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So even as we read these eight verses, we can see a whole lot of words that the psalmist is using to describe the law, right? We see the word word, law, precepts, testimonies, and commandment. So you can see how Psalm 119 fits really easily into our um, study of Deuteronomy. So, and as we read this psalm, how it just starts out, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. We can recognize right away that this word, this psalm is a prayer. The psalmist is talking to God. Psalm 119, in fact, as a whole, is a prayer. Most of the verses are read as words directed um, towards God. And most commentators agree that the purpose of the psalm is to celebrate God's word and his instruction to his people. Something to be celebrated. The psalmist beautifully expresses awe and adoration of God for his word all through the psalm. Listen to some of these verses also from Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches or the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The psalmist clearly loves God's law. And throughout the whole psalm, we see that the psalmist is expressing to God his love and longing for the word. Phrases like, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Or your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors, or how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So the psalmist's words penned and preserved for us are a prayer. 
So we also want to notice the psalmist's position before God as he writes this prayer. It's a position of humility. He comes in verse 89, he comes to him, forever, O Lord, your word. It's his word. He recognizes that the word is God's word. It's not man's word. It's not his own word. And being God's word, it has all authority. And he puts himself under that authority. Listen to some of these phrases. Again, throughout just Psalm 119. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Incline my heart to your testimonies. My hope is in your rules. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. He recognizes his own position before God. So back to verse, looking at verse 89. In this opening statement, the writer then confesses not only that scripture is the very word of God, but he also recognizes the eternality of not just the word, but of God himself. Because, you know, the word's not going to outlast God himself, unlike Elizabeth Barrett Browning's words have outlasted her God's words aren't going to outlast God. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But what is God's word? What is the psalmist talking, referring to? For the psalmist, it would have just been the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was called the Torah. But for us today in our place in history, the word does include the law, but it extends to all of Scripture. And 2 Timothy 3.16 in the New Testament says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God's word doesn't just last into eternity, but it reveals who he is. It reveals the very character of God himself. And we see this in verse 90. It says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. His faithfulness endures. It lasts. It exists on and on uh, to all generations. Psalm 33, 4 says, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. We also see God as sovereign creator. Verses, the rest of 90 and verse 91. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, just think about that. All things are held together because of him. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. As you read and study God's word, know that you are reading and studying a miraculous book. 
treasure it. Stand in awe of the fact that God himself has condescended in such a way to communicate himself to his creation, to us. What a privilege it is to hold in our hands the very voice of God as he will speak to us through his word. But what do we gain from studying God's word? What can we learn from our psalm? So in verses 92 and 93, say, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by then you have given me life. God's word gives life. In, in John chapter 6, we hear Simon Peter proclaim to Jesus, You have the very words of eternal life. And Jesus himself in that chapter said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So God's word gives life. Verse 94 in our psalm says, I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. So God's word uh, gives salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. So this kind of throws you off, doesn't it, a bit? Now all of a sudden he's talking about people that are waiting to destroy him. So he knows that people are out to harm him, to bring him to an end, but his focus is on God's word. So God's word gives hope. Hope is a confidence born of faith. And faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That comes from Romans 10. And God's word gives liberty. Verse 96 says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. A limit to all perfection. You've, all, you've been involved in things that you were like, oh, that was just perfect. That wedding, it was perfect. The reception was perfect. The bride looked perfect. Right, but, but there's a limit to even those things that we would say they're perfect. There's a limit to perfection, right? Really, there was something wrong. You just didn't know about it. There's a limit to all perfection, the psalmist says, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's, um, it's broad in other, in other translations. It says without limit. Without, it's boundless. His commandments are boundless. Ex extends without limits into eternity. Jesus says in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free if you abide in my word. So we see here that the psalmist approaches God's word with prayer and in humility and with a desire to seek out what God has for him. And in your study guide, you're going to see one of these stanzas from Psalm 119 in the beginning of each work, week of homework. We had it also in part one. And we encourage you to use these words, words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, as your prayer as you begin your study each week. In this way, <clears throat> we hope that you too will be able to approach God's word with prayer and in humility, asking him to indeed open your eyes so that you can behold wondrous things out of his law. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him to show you his faithfulness, his sovereignty. Ask him to reveal to you through his word life and salvation and hope and liberty. 
But let's talk about why we are studying Deuteronomy. Has anyone looked at you strangely when you said, yeah, I'm doing a study on the book of Deuteronomy? Or how about when you said, yeah, semester two is continuing in Deuteronomy? I myself have had a few raised eyebrows in those responses. <clears throat> but we can't just talk about why we're studying Deuteronomy. We have to really talk about why we study the Old Testament. Because many today, even professing Christians, have the mindset that we don't really need to look at the Old Testament any longer. You know, now that Jesus has come, we don't need the Old Testament. I heard a Bible teacher explain it this way. When you are designing a building, the architect draws up a blueprint. It explains how the building is built and how it's going to work. After the building is built, you take people to look at the building. You don't take them really back to the blueprint. You take them to the building. But you don't discard the blueprint ever. You keep the blueprint. You refer back to the blueprint because the blueprint shows you how it all works. And yes, this is an imperfect illustration, but in a similar fashion, the Old Testament is like the New Testament, uh, is to the New Testament like a blueprint is to the building. The Old Testament is the blueprint of the means of salvation that we find realized in the New Testament. Yes, Jesus is the way of salvation for us, but how does that work? We have to go back to the Old Testament to see how it works. How is Jesus' righteousness? You have to go back to the Old Testament to find out about righteousness. How is Jesus the Messiah? How is he a priest? How is he the Son of God? We have to go back to the Old Testament to see what it all means. The Old Testament helps us to understand more fully the means of our salvation through Jesus Christ and why we even need so great a salvation. The Old Testament anticipated the work of Jesus, while the New Testament clearly reveals the work of Jesus. The Old Testament also shows us our true position before our holy God. We understand it more fully, why we needed this salvation. So why study Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy really is the theological heart of the Old Testament. Some uh, scholars have called it the um, theological capstone. It's the, the big book. In fact, it's sort of like if you think about the, the Pentateuch, those first five books, Deuteronomy is like the big, the ending, right? Did you know that the book of Deuteronomy was lost? It had gotten lost. And it was found during the ministry of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. So Deuteronomy might have even been Jeremiah's daily devotional book. We see a lot of what, what Moses taught about in Deuteronomy. We see a lot of that in the book of Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, took them in, he consumed them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. So it's a rich theological book, not just a book about laws and rules. But that's what people think of, right, when we think of Deuteronomy. But let's talk about rules for a minute. Rules really get a bad rap, don't they? Uh, we tend to think of regulations as unnecessarily confining and restricting, often pointless and always annoying. But rightly understood, rules don't oppose freedom. They make freedom possible. So a home 
without any rules would mean that the loudest, strongest-willed child would rule the roost, leaving everyone else to no longer have the freedom of a well-balanced home. Think about traffic lights, right? That's a rule. That's a law. You have to stop at a red light. I may hate it when I'm running to work and all the lights are red when I reach an intersection, but consider how chaotic my, my trip to work would be if everybody just did what they wanted. We would not have the freedom to drive in safety if we didn't follow those rules. So I think we can all agree, really, that rules are needed in order to live in peace and freedom. So Deuteronomy is the, really the best theological treatise in the Old Testament about what God is doing with his people and what his plans are for the world for the future. So let's just do a quick little review about, of part one. So first I want us to remember that um, God speaks. We talked about how God speaks through his word. God speaks throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy. Throughout our study, we're constantly reminded that this is God's word to his people through Moses. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy opens up in this way. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Verse 3 says, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. So you have to kind of take note of this marriage, so to speak, of God's voice to Moses' voice as you work through the study. We're going to see phrases like this one from Deuteronomy 27. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. So we see that it's God's voice through Moses' voice. Secondly, we need, I just want us to remember that the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons or speeches given by Moses to the people, kind of like a State of the Union address or a national pep rally, um, because Moses, if you remember from our study in part one, he is not going to be going into the promised land with them. So it's kind of like a parent that's taking their kids to college, right? And it's like, oh, I've had all this time with you, and I've taught you everything that you need to know, and, and here you are, and I'm going to say goodbye, but remember what it is that I've told you. And what is it that he, what he had told them? He had been reminding them of what God had done and what he has called them to. He's encouraging them to trust God as they move forward to take the promised land. He's warning them and cautioning them against disobedience and rebellion. And he's repeating the law. Because remember, the people that are there poised on the eastern side of the Jordan River, that's the second generation. They're not the first generation that had come through uh, the Red Sea out of Egypt. They had, because of the rebellion, they had wandered for 40 years and those, that generation passed away. Now this is the second generation. So he's repeating the law because these, these were either born during that 40 years or they were very young when the law was given the first time. So Moses, he's just like, oh, these are my final words to you. And I want you to remember everything that I've tried to teach you. And remember... Right? It's a very common theme in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to hear that a lot. So in chapters 1 through 3, we kind of have this historical prologue. It's kind of like a travelogue of sorts. Moses tells the story of Israel's 40-year um, journey. <clears throat> 
excuse me, from Mount Horeb to the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, touching upon the Exodus, the revelation at Mount Horeb, and Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. In chapter 4, Moses discusses the importance of observing the law by elaborating upon the significance of the first commandment regarding the exclusive allegiance that God demands. And he reviews the terms of the covenant. Do you remember what a covenant is? A covenant is an agreement. It's usually formal between two or more persons or parties where um, they vow to do, one party will do something, and the other party has to vow to do something in response. So in ancient history, when a great king approached a lesser king to draw him into an alliance, stating, well, he'll state, this is what I'll do, uh, but you need to do certain things too. And in this case of the covenant that God made with his people, he's saying, I'll provide and protect you, and you will worship only me. So Moses is reminding them and calling them to obedience He reminds them that idolatry is going to be forbidden, and there are severe consequences uh, for committing idolatry. He reminds them that the Lord alone is God, and only he is to be worshipped. We have to remember, too, that the covenant was founded on past acts of salvation. God had said, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Remember what I did. Now, how will you respond? Will you respond by worshiping me? The law was given after the great act of redemption, not before. And that's important to remember. In chapter 5, we see the Ten Commandments are given. And we're also given a glimpse into the scene at the mountain when God himself spoke those words to the people, that which were spoken to the first generation. And they were terrified with a right fear of God And they did promise that they would always obey him. Do you remember that? But uh, we know that they didn't. (laughs) In chapter 6, we come upon the Shema. The Shema, the greatest commandment is what Jesus called it. And it reads like this in in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is really the hub of Deuteronomy. Moses wants them to understand that obedience to the Lord God involves a wholehearted, whole self love for God, and nothing less will do. We go on, chapters nine through, 7 through 9, um, he talks about the danger of assimilation with the Canaanites for fear of idolatry and for the holiness of God's people to be intact. Um, The importance of remembering, again, we hear remember, remembering and not forgetting that it is God who brings the blessings to them. They didn't do it themselves. An exhortation to obedience in regards to God's mercy and his goodness. And Moses tries to dissuade them from the opinion of their own righteousness by rehearsing their several rebellions. Uh, We see in, I think it's chapter 9, the golden calf incident again. In chapter 10, we see God's mercy towards them in restoring the two tablets of stone. He wrote again the law out on the two tablets, which were um, representative of the covenant. So even after their rebellion, he established the covenant with them again. And another exhortation comes about obedience. 
So as we begin our study in part two of Deuteronomy, we're going to start right off looking at the expanded law of God. We're going to study the rules and the statutes, the precepts that God had given to his people. And you recall how rules bring freedom? Well, it's for that same reason that God gave his law to his people, to teach them how to live as a peculiar people among pagan nations. They, were to be, they had been a people who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. So now that God has brought them out and set them on a path towards the promised land, they're going to need to know how to live in relationship with him and with each other. And if you recall from last semester when we studied the Ten Commandments, we talked about how those Ten Commandments were really meant as like a table of contents to the expanded law. So as we move forward in our study, we're going to see sections that expand our understanding of of the the commandment about the worship of the one true God. We're going to see um, expanded teaching on what it means to honor his name. We're going to see expanded teaching about the Sabbath and so on and so on. And we're going to ask you to look at each uh, to we're going to ask you to look for which of the 10 commandments are foundational for these various laws that we're going to study. We're going to think about how these laws and statutes reveal how God is providing for his people and how he is protecting his people, his own people. We're going to try not to get stuck in the details that seem very strange to us, and they will, uh, and try not to miss the forest for the trees. (laughs) You have to stay kind of above. Moses is teaching the people what each of those Ten Commandments is going to look like in practical, everyday living. Sometimes we wish we had that, don't we? I just want to know how to do it. That's what we're going to be studying. And under each statute that we're going to study, it will be the guideline of loving God or loving neighbor. And many of these statutes that we're reading and study, they're going to seem very odd, or they won't make sense to us, and they may even appear um, morally deficient. But we need to be careful, very careful, not to put our cultural context on the text. We need to understand first that God is calling a people to himself and he is making a way for them to function as his people in and among pagan peoples. They are not to follow the way of the pagan nations that surround them and they need to know what that's going to look like. So remember how we talked about the psalmist's position of humility before the Lord and how he accepted God's word as having all authority? We're going to need to remember that, too, as we study the remainder of Deuteronomy, that the law is good. It was given by God to his people, and it reveals his good and holy character. And remember, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable to us. All scripture. So reading the Ten Commandments and other Old Testament laws, many Christians may ask, well, why all these rules and regulations? What does God want from us? What's he getting at? And what's his motivation for giving us this law? Well, if you look at the front cover of your study guide, you're going to see the title of our study. It's called The Law of Love. And we're not going to understand the purpose behind the law of God until we see how it connects to love. Because love is at the heart of God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding today for your good. What does he require of you? Walk in his ways, love him, serve him, keep his commandments and statutes, which Moses is giving them. And it's for their good. Moses tells them it's for your own good. And it's not just Moses talking to the Israelites. That's the reason why God gives us the law, too, why he gives us his word. It's for our own good, too. Sometimes we get frustrated when we have rules and laws to follow. But it's the person who becomes like the psalmist able to savor the law of the Lord and delight in it because he knows that behind the law is a loving father. And in case you doubt that love is behind the law, just go back and review what's been taking place in Deuteronomy up till the point, maybe before you start this week's homework, go back and read the first 11 chapters again. First, you're going to see how God's majesty and unparalleled uh, power is magnified. And then Moses essentially says to the people, this awe-inspiring God who owns and is, is in charge of everything loved you and loved your forefathers. And he chose to rescue you. He chose to rescue them. And according to Moses, God's love for his people is the foundation of his merciful rescue of the children of Israel from the hand of slavery. This isn't a God who loves in the abstract. He's a God who gets involved. He is love in action. He is concerned about every part of their lives even civil obedience, how we treat our neighbors as well as the foreigner. We saw that in part one of our study. And after Moses reminded the people of God's work and their redemption, he tells them to submit freely to God's will and his ways. And we too are to respond to God's work of redemption in our lives by obeying the very God who has saved us. We remember the love of God in giving us what we need, and we allow him to change us to the point that our desires begin to align with his. The Ten Commandments aren't given as a way to work for salvation from God. They're given after God has worked salvation for us. They aren't given so that we can rescue ourselves. They are given to those God has rescued and that's a beautiful story. <clears throat> so how does the law affect us today? Well, it shows us how we are to live in light of God's holy character. Because here's the thing. We live with a sinful nature, don't we? D.A. Carson writes this. People do not drift towards holiness. We don't drift towards holiness Apart from grace-driven effort, meaning the effort we would have that's grace-driven from our Father, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We don't. So we need the law to show us how to live in relationship with God and with others. Now, will it look different for us than it did for ancient Israel? Of course it will. But the underlying principles don't change. The Ten Commandments still have an effect on our lives. 
But let's not lose our focus. Why is it called the law of love? Well, who gave the law? God. Who is God to us? As Christ followers, who is God to us? He is our loving Father. Our loving Father. And as our loving Father, he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law through the death of his son. He has given us his spirit, and he's given us his word. He desires to change us into the likeness of his son, to transform us from the inside out through the renewing of our minds, which won't happen without scripture, the whole of scripture. In John 1, we read that in the beginning was the word. And that word in the Greek is logos. It's a Greek word that means a word spoken. We further read that Jesus is that word. So when you come to the word, open your Bibles, you are sitting at the feet of your creator and at the feet of the ultimate teacher, the Lord Jesus. And he will teach you through his word. Something I read from Paul David Tripp's book, Do You Believe, that I really loved. It says, he says this about the word. The word won't just impart knowledge to you, but it will form wisdom in you. God's word undoes you and then builds you again. It deconstructs the thoughts and motives of your heart and then reconstructs them. You cannot sit under the teaching of the word of God with an open and willing heart and remain the same. In teaching you, it recreates you in the likeness of the one who made you and gifted you. And how is that not loving? So what does it all mean? God designed the law to guide the life of his people so that they would become a particular kind of people. Israel could not be a light to the nations without standing out from the world. The law was given in love from the Father who rescued them and who continued to form in them his image. And I pray that that's our focus too, to see God's heart behind the law that we'll be studying this semester, to see his heart for his people, for us whom he loves. And I want us to remember, too, what is the main message of Deuteronomy? The message of Deuteronomy is to listen to God, to obey him and love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus taught that this was the greatest commandment. And everywhere we go, we should seek to love God and have this attitude that will uh, pervade our worship, our prayer, our Bible reading, and our Bible study, especially our study of Deuteronomy because we're going to need him through this. <laughs> so are we to be obedient to the law of God today? The New Testament, 1 Peter 1, says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, and be holy also in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. How are we going to do that? How are we going to know how to be holy and live as God is holy if we don't go by his word? But are we able to be as holy as God is holy? No, we are not. We are not. So um, 
What then? What then? What do we do? We turn to the one, the one who was able to keep the law perfectly. Hebrews 10 tells us that the law had but a shadow of the good things that were to come. It was the blueprint. The sacrificial system that God himself set up couldn't make perfect those for whom the sacrifices were being made. So they needed to be made repeatedly, day in and day out, year in and year out. But in verses 12 through 8 in chapter 10 in Hebrews, we read this. But when Christ, who had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work was finished and it was complete and it was thorough. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So hear that. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you know the Lord, if you are his child, you are being sanctified. And that single sacrifice that Christ made, he has perfected you. So that when Jesus earlier in Matthew says, be perfect as I am perfect, we can't do that in our flesh, right? But by his single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit, continuing in Hebrews, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Aren't you glad that Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice? and stood in our place so that we would have the forgiveness afforded to us that enables us to stand before God someday and hear him say that he remembers our sins no more? When you study the law of Moses, be aware that you are studying things that are but a shadow of the real thing. The law is the blueprint. The building is Jesus. But we look to the blueprint so that we can better understand the true thing, the better reality. If anyone asks you why you are studying Deuteronomy, you can say, well, because I want to understand my position before a holy God and why Jesus had to die to save me. In the meantime, pray, humbly submit to the authority of God through his word, through the scriptures, asking him to transform you into the likeness of his son, and our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to hear these words that you breathed into the psalmist's heart and mind in Psalm 119. How can a young woman keep her way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With our whole heart we seek you. Let us not wander from your commandments. Help us to store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. With our lips, we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, we delight as much as in all riches. We will meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. We will delight in your statutes. We will not forget your word. May it be so, Father. May it be so. In your son's name I pray.
Amen.